Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Dr. Robert Melillo on our program on Fan this Sunday morning. In the course of our discussion, we're going to be touching upon some aspects of... Um, surrounding the coronavirus, which everybody's dealing with in one form or another, but some perspectives that perhaps some of the folks listening to us may not have pondered unless they're directly impacted by this themselves or by a loved one. The coronavirus, in terms of people with OCD, and anxiety disorders. I want to get into talking about that, but first, I always like to don't, not to assume anything in these discussions. Can you explain what OCD is? Well, it's described as um, uh, what you would know as obsessive thoughts, uh, certain uh, ideas, or you know what we call ideations. People have them in their head, and um, it's just repetitive, and they can't really stop it. Um, they may have compulsive behaviors, and compulsive behaviors usually fall into uh, three or four different categories. They may fall around hygiene, like washing themselves or washing their hands, uh, what we call checking, so like going back and making sure they turned off the light or turned off the stove. Um, it may also be around symmetry, where they have certain numbers of things or uh, things have to be symmetrical, or it may be what we call hoarding. So, you know, people that are hoarders uh, will, will, you know, stock up. All of these behaviors are pretty much what we call stereotypical behaviors, or also known as stereotypes, meaning they're evolutionarily programmed behaviors that we have. I mean, it's, it's not a bad thing to make sure that we're clean. It's not a bad thing, you know, to, to make sure we have enough stored for the winter. Um, but what we see in obsessive compulsive disorder is just it got it got out of control um, where they're uh, you know they can't control it and it becomes something that impacts their whole life and you know from my perspective it's not a psychological perspective this is a neurological issue and it's basically like there's this switch um, primarily in the left side of their brain that gets turned on. And there's a switch on the right side of the brain that turns it off, and the right side of the brain isn't really doing what it's supposed to do. So when there's a trigger, like if somebody you know feels like they might be getting sick or a virus, or it, it triggers it off, and then it, it's almost impossible for it to shut off. Mm. Who exactly is most impacted by this, or are, does it vary as to who gets associated? Well, OCD is it goes along with a, a lot with ADHD. We see that attention deficit hyperactive disorder, which is one of the 
which is the, the number one mental and, uh, mental issue amongst young people and quickly becoming uh, one of the, the largest amongst uh, um, older people and adults as well. Um, so ADHD, ticks, tick disorder like Tourette's um, and OCD often come together because really it's the same area of the brain. Uh, there's these networks in the brain uh, that are on the right side and the left side in an area called the basal ganglia. And these are areas that controls a lot of our behavior and almost every aspect of our behavior. And when there is this kind of imbalance between the left side and the right side, where the left side is turning things on and the right side turning things off, we can get these different issues. So it's really a matter of... Um, you know, those issues kind of come together in varying degrees. Many people with autism have obsessive and compulsive behaviors as well. But what we also see it happens primarily in people that are highly intelligent. So what we see is that the left brain, people that are left brain dominant, have what we call an intellect trait, right? It's a normal human trait where the left brain is very logical and linear and has great memory for details and it's very academic. And so what we see is that their, their left side is very strong and the right side may not be quite as strong. And the right side is about attention, it's about social skills, it's about nonverbal communication and um, getting a big picture. It's more creative. The right brain has what we call more creative trait. So what we see is people that tend to get OCD or people that are very intelligent, maybe very good academically, people that are naturally driven into careers like engineering and computer technology, math, science, um, and people that are pretty logical and linear and kind of almost a little obsessive uh, normally. And so, you know, it's really just a, a, a superimposed on this normal trait, but we see it, you know, quite often in people with ADHD as well. So does is it a situation where everybody who has OCD has what some people talk about uh, as being an obsessive fear of things like germs? Uh, again, not not always, because like I said, there's it can it can it can take different different ways, like hoarding or symmetry or um, or uh, cleanliness. But there's a specific subset of people that. You know, their obsession, the obsessive behavior, compulsive behavior, surrounds hygiene and making sure that they don't get sick. You know, someone like, we you know, Howard Hughes, right, who's a very famous uh, uh, wealthy person who, um, you know, was very com uh, worried about other people around him and didn't want anybody touching him or being near him. So not everybody with OCD is going to have that fear of, uh, getting sick, but the people that do, it's it's really very, very strong and very effective. And what is what would be, what potentially can be, the impact of the coronavirus on all this? Well, this is like the ultimate trigger, right? I mean, you know, like I said, most of these, most ticks and obsessive and compulsive behavior is a trigger of some sort that kind of flips that switch like I said, primarily in the left side of their brain. And, um, you know, the coronavirus is like the ultimate switch right now, right? We've never seen anything like this where everybody's basically been, you know, has to isolate and, you know, we've been told to wash our hands and 
use hand sanitizer and don't touch anybody and use gloves and wear masks and you know these are things that a person like that might do on their own and what might prevent them from doing is just the fact that you don't want to look you know completely weird or strange from everybody else but now everybody's doing it and we're actually being told to do it and I think that um, you know, it's, it's something that you can be very fearful about, and anxiety and fear is something that is a big trigger. So anxiety is also something kind of generated pre predominantly by the left side of our brain that is anticipation of some sort of adverse or negative event, um, you know, like getting sick and potentially dying. And so anxiety really triggers OCD even more. So I, I think right now we're just looking at the ultimate trigger for anybody that does have OCD and especially around the idea of getting getting germs. That whole idea of the wearing a face mask or some sort of face covering, obviously this has been very much in the news recently in the whole debate to some extent as to whether people should do this, when they should do it, where, etc. You know, I know in times when I've now a interesting to watch people who have their masks on, like a person driving in a car, and have their mask on, and exactly at the risk of this being a bit obsessive here with this. You know, I mean, is there danger enough going too far with this? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that when you look at the reality of masks, first of all, um, even the N95 mask, which is one of the best masks out there, um, it has a three micron filter, so meaning that anything above three microns will be filtered out, anything below three microns won't, and the coronavirus is one micron. So the reality is, is that even the best mask probably won't uh, filter the virus from getting through the mask, but um, what we do know is that you know it makes it a little bit more difficult. Um, and but when you look at other masks that are out there, <laughs> my wife had one of her friends cut up his shanks, um, <laughs> and, and put it on her face. And I don't think the shanks is three microns in filtering. So, um, you know, the reality is, is that many of the masks, you know, how much are they really going to do? I mean, they may prevent, like, if you're coughing or sneezing, they may prevent you from really sending, um, you know, sputum far. So, you know, there is some protectiveness to it and there's some sense to it. But, yeah, like you said, I mean, when you're in your car by yourself, um, to me, that makes no sense whatsoever. Um, you know, I think at this point, I, I think a lot of people are just it's fear. It's also almost like you know social pressure. Like people are, are start are going to look at you now, like if you're in a supermarket and you don't have a mask on or you don't have gloves on. Um, you know, they're going to look at you like um, maybe you don't really care about other people and you might get them sick. And I think you know, to a certain extent, it's a matter of respect, and it just shows that people are following the rules as well. Well, that along with this whole thing that we've seen now, um, where even walking in a park, you know, you have the people who are approaching you or you're approaching them, and the closer that you get, you can see in many people's eyes 
the increased level of anxiety and fear. Uh, moving to get at least six feet away from you in many cases, or most cases. If they have a young child, they're definitely moving to get as far away from you as possible. Um, yeah. And, I mean, it's, in my mind, is a danger that we can go too far uh, with this um, idea of isolating and, and separating. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that. I mean, I know that, you know, we need to be careful and there's, this is a, a new virus, but, um, you know, I, I think the bottom line is that it's it's like a flu. Um, in many ways, it's in the same family as, as a cold virus. Um, so, you know, I think we won't know until we look back. Were we overcautious? I guess, you know, most people feel like we'd rather be cautious than under cautious or something like this. Um, but I think, you know, most, most experts believe that in the end when we really get a good idea as to how many people actually have this, that will probably be, you know, under 1% as far as death rate, which is um, not that you want to see anybody die, of course, but that's, you know, not it's pretty similar to a flu or something else like that. But on the other side, what I have seen, Bob, is that you know, I've been going out most days running in the park by myself. And I've never seen so many people in the park um, or even seeing kids on bikes again. My wife and I were, were walking the other day, and I was like, wow, I saw taxi teenage kids on bikes, and I haven't seen that in years. And so there's a good side to this, I think, you know, where people are, you know, forced to spend more time. Parents are actually outside with their kids and, People are, are writing and doing things and out in the park, and even though I just think they're avoiding one another, I think just the fact that they're out in the park um, is, is a good thing as well. For parents of special needs children, um, is there a heightened level of concern about coronavirus? I think there, there is, and if there isn't, there should be um, to a certain extent because people don't realize, even what a lot of immunologists don't realize and doctors, is that you know, the brain is the master regulator of the immune system. The brain regulates it. And the brain controls the immune system, especially what's called the adaptive immune system, which is an immune system that really, really responds to viruses and, and bacteria. And, um, and the left and the right brain, again, control that differently. The way the left brain works for most things is that it's kind of like a gas pedal. It turns things on, it activates them, and the right brain then turns it off. So, you know, if we get sick or something invades our body, the left brain turns on our T cells, uh, our lymphocytes, and our white blood cells, and we, and we attack it. And then when it's dead, um, we should turn the immune system off so that the immune system doesn't keep on attacking our body. We have something called antibodies that are these kind of early early warning uh, things that, you know, when we are invaded by our body by a virus or bacteria or something, these antibodies will attach themselves to the invader so that we white blood cells can, can see it and can kill it, especially the viruses because viruses are so small. Um, and the left side, again, sensitizes the antibodies so that we're sensitive enough that we pick up on uh, an invader. But the right brain then has to decrease that sensitivity because 
if our immune system is too sensitive, we may we may mark some of our own body. And this is what we call autoimmunity. And this is where we, you know, look at eczema, where our body attacks our skin, or where we have Hashimoto's thyroid, it attacks our thyroid, or it can attack the covering of our nerves, like multiple sclerosis. So this balancing act, like anything else, where we want the immune system to be sensitive and strong enough, where we react, then we need to shut it off, uh, or we start attacking ourselves. What we see is that kids that have learning disabilities like dyslexia um, or um, uh, dyscalculia or um, people that have depression or maybe with Parkinson's or bipolar disorder or uh, PTSD, these are all issues where we see the left brain is, is underactive or underdeveloped and the right brain is overactive. And it, it also oversuppresses the immune system. So the immune system is compromised. These are kids that when they're little, they're constantly getting ear infections and they end up getting tubes placed in their ears. And they're always sick and they're always on antibiotics. And um, and these are kids right now that I think are really at risk because, again, they have a, they, they literally have an uh, immune system that is, is weaker and compromised and they can get sick. On the other hand, you get a kid with autism or ADHD or someone with OCD or Tourette's where their immune system is too strong. And these kids uh, and adults are often, you know, they have food sensitivities or they may get allergies or asthma or they may get some sort of um, autoimmune problem like eczema, their immune system is is overactive. And if they're exposed to something, it might trigger more of an autoimmune reaction. So in either case, you know, we see that the immune system is compromised in one way or the other. And so, you know, I tell especially uh, people or kids or parents of kids with left brain types of delays, and I describe it in my book, Disconnected Kids, so they know what that means, that they really should do things to stimulate their left brain, and even the average person out there, if they want to protect themselves in some way, besides isolating and besides certain particular types of vitamins that really do help, um, doing things that will stimulate the left side of the brain is something that will boost your immune system and I believe will be protective. Dr. Robert Melillo on our program on FAN this Sunday morning. Thank you for joining us on Smash Radio 66, Smash Radio 1019. Those of you joining us on radio.com, thanks for being part of that group of people who do join this program on a weekly basis. We appreciate your support of that. And I know that people who listen to the show on a delayed basis, sometimes it's days, sometimes it's weeks, sometimes it's even hours or months uh, later. And there are people who share program with other people literally around the country and their family, friends and the like, colleagues, in some cases sharing with people in different parts of the world. Now, the topic of vitamins, Dr. Melillo, what do you recommend in terms of the use of vitamins and supplements? Well, I think the number one vitamin for the immune system um, that really helps to balance the immune system and helps to also help protect our gut is vitamin D. Vitamin D3 is, I think, the most important vitamin you can eat for your immune system. And I recommend pretty high doses. Normally, I recommend high doses, but especially if you're looking at a flu season or if you have something else going on. So for me, I usually recommend at least 5,000 IUs for my patients. 
or even up. I mean, I take 10 to 15,000 a day myself, especially right now. Um, there are some people and some doctors that I've listened to that are pretty, pretty knowledgeable that have seen that even taking um, very high doses when you are infected for up to seven or eight days can get over that illness very quickly. But vitamin D is one of those vitamins that it is fat soluble, so you do have to be a little bit careful of it. But um, that is a big one. Vitamin C, as we all know, is important. Uh, zinc is important. And I think omega-3 fish oils are also something that are very protective and help to reduce inflammation. Um, and some sort of probiotic and prebiotic for your gut. I think these are the vitamins that, you know, I most basically recommend. Um, there, you know, there's a lot of other ones, but I think that vitamin D, vitamin D, zinc, zinc and omega-3s for me are the most important. Well, too, and, and you know, what I've, what I've devised, and that's part of the program that I created, and it's part of what I've done in my practice for years, and in our brain balance centers, you know, we have about 100 centers around the country, and over the past 10 years, we've worked with approximately 40,000 kids. Um, and so, you know, the brain is like a muscle. And we have different areas of our brain, and it's localized. And the right and the left brain do different things in different areas. The like left brain controls verbal language and speaking and spelling and vocabulary. And the right brain is nonverbal language. And normally, our whole brain should be working all the time. Both sides of the brain are always active. But they do different things so that when, you know, we're communicating, we're saying the words, but we also have facial expression, we have hand gestures, uh, we have a tone of voice. And both of those things are important for normal communication. You can't just have gestures and facial expression and no words, and you can't have words with no um, nonverbal communication. Either one, the communication is not going to be normal. So the brain controls different functions. It controls motor functions. So the right brain is more about gross motor function. The left brain is more about fine motor function. Um, it responds to different things sensorily. So, for instance, even different colors affect the brain differently. The right side of the brain is affected more by what we call high-frequency colors, things like green and blue and violet. And the left side of the brain is more red and orange and yellow and different sounds, different types of music. So all different types of things are affecting the brain, and there are different areas of the brain that control them and regulate them. And if we're good at something, if we're extremely talented, if we're highly intelligent, or we're very talented artists, you know, what is that? And what we know is that there are networks in an area of the brain that regulate that particular function that are super connected with one another. The more connected the brain is, the more connection networks are, the faster we're better at what we do and the better we are at certain things and certain skills. So we can train that as well. We can take a particular skill, a particular part uh, of our brain, and we can train it by doing that skill over and over and over. Um, and the way the brain works is that if one area of one side of the brain is too strong, it will suppress or it may inhibit the development or the connectivity of an area of the brain on the opposite side of the brain. So it's important that there is a balance so that the brain needs to cooperate, but certain times one area of the brain is also going to dominate. So 
um, you know, creating balance and particularly targeting. So what we do is, if there are areas of the brain that are underdeveloped or underconnected, we specifically only activate those by doing that particular skill or that activity, that motor activity, that sensory type of stimulation. And we do that for a while until we can measure that it matches the other side of the brain. And this is very, very effective. You know, I, I started my career as a chiropractor, and I was very into sports and athletics, and I wanted to use, um, I wanted to go into sports medicine in some way. When I got into chiropractic school, I realized that, you know, chiropractic really was founded in neurology. It was all based on the nervous system and on the brain. And I fell in love with neurology. And after I graduated, I, I got a specialty in neurology and then in rehabilitation. And, um, and I wanted to basically take this kind of sports medicine and approach to neurological conditions. I then went and also got a master's in neuroscience and then a degree in in neuropsychology and rehabilitation and, um, you know, really tried to put it all together. Uh, but it really was uh, around 1995 that my, um, you know, my own son was labeled as ADHD and I wanted to learn more about that and what to do about it. And, you know, in the early 90s, I was teaching a graduate course on, uh, on neurology and clinical neurology and rehabilitation and um, that was the decade of the brain, Bill Clinton had called it the decade of the brain, and all this new brain research came out, and also new ways of imaging the brain and looking at the brain in real time, things like fMRI and spec scans and PET scans and uh, magnoencephalography, and so all this new research on how the brain actually functions and on what we call functional connectivity that most of the time, people with mental health issues or learning issues or other types of neurological issues didn't have any damage or any actual anatomical problems. The idea of chemical imbalances really was seen that it really doesn't work that way. Uh, but there was imbalances, but there was an imbalance in what was called functional connectivity, the way the brain connects and communicates and the way it shares information there were problems with that, and that was the basis of almost all of these things. And through time, we realized that most of that happens in development, meaning even most mental health issues really start in early childhood or even in the womb, even though they may not manifest like schizophrenia until someone's in their 20s. Um, also, you know, how the, the hemispheres developed and what they did and how they regulated and it started to become more apparent that when you look at the symptoms in mental health, that basically none of it makes sense unless you look at it in the light of the right and left brain and how it works and looking at areas that are overactive and areas that are underactive. So because I had a background in, in rehabilitation, um, you know, rehab is all about creating balance in the body. Um, if you have muscles on one side of the body that are too tight or too strong and others that are too weak or too loose, you create balance by doing different exercises by targeting the weak side and the weak areas. So when I started looking at this problem and I recognized that ADHD was this kind of neurological imbalance, it was logical to me to say, well, you know, let's uh, really target the areas on the right side of the brain that are underdeveloped and really uh, stimulate them 
to try to bring them back to match the other side. And as soon as I started doing that, I started getting results that were really remarkable. And then the more I went on with it and the more then we did some research and, you know, then uh, uh, that's where eventually after about 10 years of working with kids, I realized that we had something that was pretty special and that's when I created Brain Balance and came out with my book, Disconnected Kids. When you initially introduced the Brain Balance system, what was the reaction to it like? Um, anytime you come out with something that's new and literally revolutionary, because this was a whole new concept. Um, no one had ever done this before, even though it was really founded in very good research um, for the average clinician out there. They had never heard of anything like this. And so naturally there was a lot of skepticism. And, um, you know, even though it didn't seem to be dangerous in any way, uh, you know, naturally people were, you know, how did, how did we not hear this? Uh, on the other hand, when I, when I mentioned it or when I did a lecture to parents or people read my book, the reaction right off the bat was like, wow, this makes so much sense. And parents immediately would say, wow, you just described my child to a T. How do you, you don't even, you've never even met him, but yet I read this book and it describes everything about my child and nobody's ever done that before. And so it, it, it's a part of it that makes so much sense and speaks truth so that when you read it or you hear it, if you're a parent, especially of a child like this, you say, wow, you know, this really makes a lot of sense. And I think that's what happened. Parents really gravitated towards it. And they said, you know, I'm going to try this because, um, you know, it doesn't seem to have any potential danger to it, and, and it makes sense to me. And then people started getting, you know, remarkable results. And from there, it just grew. Like I said, you know, we, we've worked with 40,000 families with, a, you know, better than 90, 95% success rate in all different types of issues. And, uh, you know, and then I also did a lot of research. And before I came out and did this, I also wrote a extensive textbook that was then being used in some medical schools and psychology programs and called neurobehavioral disorders of childhood and evolutionary perspective. So, you know, there was a lot, there was a lot of research behind it. And, um, you know, it, it started getting, bottom line is it gets the results. And we were getting results. And uh, so it gained in popularity, and you know my book Disconnected Kids is one of the biggest selling books uh, in this area of all time. Dr. Robert Melillo is talking with us on our program on the fan this Sunday morning. Dr. Melillo has joined us previously on our program. He's the creator of the Brain Balance System. Now your new book is entitled Einstein's Desk. It's an intriguing title. Can you explain for us? It's all about. Well, you know, because you, you come up with something new and when you know and you see how effective it can be and how it can help people, um, you have a responsibility of raising awareness. You have a responsibility of going out there and, and arguing your case, right, and trying to make people listen uh, to this. And that's really what I've been doing for the last, you know, 12, 15 years at least. And, you know, you try to do it in different mediums. Um, you know, not everybody reads a book. Um, you know, not every doctor is going to read scientific papers that I've written or textbooks that I've written. Um, so, 
you, you know, you look for different ways of doing that. So obviously doing interviews like this, doing TV interviews um, is another way. My wife and I had also done a, a radio show and a TV talk show, and we did a web series called Disconnected Kids Reconnected Families, where we went into families' homes that the kids were going through one of our centers, and we, you know, would work with families on doing things with their diet and nutrition and home exercises and looking at the cleanliness of their environment and work with the marriages. And so we, we did things that were entertaining and visual as well because we're in a visual world. I remember I had one TV uh, person that said to me, you know, I've heard you do all these incredible things with kids. And he said, you know, can I see videos of them? And I said, we don't really have a lot of videos because these are private and we don't really film people. And he said, well, you know, in this day and age, if you don't have it on video, it doesn't exist, right? People won't believe it. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why we, we, we did our web series was to show people the changes. Um, and so this was the next step for me. This was the next evolution. I've written um, five best-selling nonfiction books and many kids books, but I'd never written a novel before. And this book really came about personally because my my youngest son was somewhat on the autism spectrum when he was younger and he went to one of my centers here and uh, really corrected him in his teenage years. But he still, you know, like a lot of kids with autism, he didn't really like reading books. He didn't write, like reading fiction or things like that. So I first got him into reading comic books. I just wanted to get him to read. And he liked science. He was he liked hearing about stories about famous scientists. And, um, so I was writing one of my books, and he asked me about it. And I said to him, would you like to write a book someday? And he said, I don't know, maybe. And I said, well, if you're going to write a book, you have to read books. And he said, um, okay. And I said, I'll tell you what, why don't we write a book together? Why don't you and I write a book? And we'll just make it up. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, uh, we'll, put, we'll make you the hero of the book. And we'll put our family story in it to a certain extent. And we'll put, talk about what I do, you know, in my practice and the brain and the really cool things that we talk about about the brain and how it works. And, and we'll put, you know, we'll talk about people like Einstein and Nikola Tesla and, uh, you know, other famous scientists in it, and it'll be fun. So we started going to a bookstore and getting, picking up books and doing research on scientists and going on, you know, Googling and getting all this information. And I've been, been kind of a fan of Einstein for many years. I knew a lot about him. And one of the things I was always obsessed with was um, a picture of Einstein's desk in Princeton the day after he died. Um, you know, Einstein, the day uh, before he died, he was trying to figure out what's called the unified theory, meaning basically the trying to figure out the, the picture of the whole universe, how it all works, trying to figure out how to mix um, relativity with quantum mechanics. And many people say that he, you know, wasn't close. Other people say he was close. Uh, but... You know, if you ever see a picture of his desk, it's a classic right-brain genius desk. I mean, it's a mess. He's got a million papers all over his desk, and there's all these equations on the blackboard behind him, and there's all these papers on on these shelves around him. And I always thought to myself, you know, what if 
day before Einstein, you know, died, when he went to the hospital, that he figured it all out. What if he had figured out the whole universe and it's somewhere on that desk? Did anybody ever look? Did anybody ever say, hey, you know, it's there, right? And so that kind of was the impetus for the book, was that where the Einstein's desk came from. Um, and uh, and it went from there. And, and after a while, you know, we just, we did that, but then it, it kind of we kind of lost interest and I was writing other books. And then my brother approached me because uh, I told him the story because it was a great, great story. And he said, you know, you've got to write that book. It's just such a great story. And so then we decided to do it together. And when we decided to do it together, that was something that was very special to me. And I didn't care if it got published. It was more about writing it with my brother. What was that experience like? It was fantastic because, you know, growing up, my father um, was very into creative writing. He was a he wrote poems himself, and we would often sit around in our living room in front of a fire, and um, he would pull out these book of classic poems, and um, he would read them, and then he would have each one of us read them, and we all had our favorite poems, and, and we would do it periodically. And I, I almost, I almost wonder. I hope, I hope families are doing that now with their kids, right? Or when you're being locked in, it was such a great experience to, you know, read these poems and and talk about what they meant, and you know, we would cry and laugh, and it was really a beautiful experience. And you know, I think it really triggered a curiosity in in us. My brother and I were very close. He was older than me, and we were both very athletic and into sports, but we also into science and science fiction. And we, you know, we, we had the same bedroom where we, you know, we had two little beds in the same room. We were into comic books, and, and he was my hero, of course. So, you know, anything he was into, I was into. And we would spend hours, you know, at night talking about different things about, like, you know, comic books, Hulk beat Superman, but we also went to science and really kind of things like, um, you know, this whole ancient alien thing. Um, my brother got the first book that was ever written on that, like I think in 1969, on ancient aliens, and we would talk about that. And so we, we had a similar mentality about things, about science, about life. Um, and... You know, I he had written uh, three novels himself that were really great kind of fantasy novels that were fantastic. And I had written really just nonfiction, and so coming together and being able to do this um, and really take the story that I had created with his he has great dialogue that he writes, and you know, just being able to combine that together and spend time. Um, you know, because when you get older, normally, even though you love one another, your lives go separate ways, and you don't spend as much time with each other. And this was great, and it was it was just easy. It just flowed, and it was he would do something, and then I would go do something on it. It was just a wonderful experience, really. It's something that uh, you know I, I you know cherish, and if we do it again, it's because it's just such a fun experience. And we and we also wanted to share this for our kids, all of our cousins and all of that. Dr. Melillo, do you truly feel that Einstein would have had autism? And why do you feel that way? Well, you know, one of the things when you look at autism today, primarily the main way it's diagnosed is usually at 
if the child is not speaking at three years of age. If they're not speaking at three years of age, they usually immediately get a diagnosis called PVD, NOS, Pervasive Developmental Disorder, not otherwise specified. Um, and not all of those kids end up being autistic. Some are the opposite of autism, which is really kind of what I believe Einstein was. But I do, from all accounts that I've read on Einstein, I've done a lot of research on this. Um, by the age of four, he was not speaking. So I do believe that had he been around today, that he would have probably been labeled as autism. Um, there was some apparently early challenges with his learning. Um, he, um, you know, may have had somewhat of a learning disability, believe it or not, or dyslexia. Uh, one of his teachers, when he was younger, you know, basically said, basically felt he was mentally deficient, told his parents that, and actually felt like he would never really amount to anything. Uh, so, you know, I think that story is a story that I've heard so many, so many times with kids and families that I've worked with. Um, and that's one of the things I wanted to do in this book is, again, raise awareness, use this as a vehicle to say, you know, what is autism and what is, what is, what are learning disabilities? What is actually happening in the brain? What is the reality of them? And the reality is that, um, you know, anybody that ends up with one of those disabilities, it's really because they're, they're actually gifted in other areas. And certain areas of the brain are probably too strong. Um, and that's why many of them have a genius level skill. And so most geniuses, um, they also have some sort of developmental issue, and that's really kind of part of the nature. Remember I said that to be a genius at something, uh, whether it's science or math or whether it's art, really you have an area of your brain that is more highly connected than most people. And that can also get out of control where it's overconnected. And what we see in things like autism and dyslexia and ADHD is that they're hyper-connected in certain areas of their brain and they're under-connected in others. So that they have these incredible skills and maybe even these month-level skills along with some deficiencies that may affect them. Now, most people, their strengths can overcome their weaknesses so that you know, many people can be very highly functioning and going out there and over and, and compensate for their weaknesses. But if the um, weaknesses are too strong, um, they may not be able to, and they may be labeled with a disability. So I believe, like Nikola Tesla in the book we talk about, I mean, he was clearly obsessed with compulsive. He used to go to the Waldorf Astoria and for dinner, and he had to have, you know, 17 or 18 napkins. He had to have everything exactly the right way. Um, and he never really had a relationship with anyone. Same thing with Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton never had a personal relationship with anybody as far as anybody knows. And he was compulsive and spent a lot of his time trying to figure out, you know, a code in the Bible. But, and by all accounts, he was a very strange individual. But he obviously figured out calculus, right? So you have these people throughout history that are the genius level people, um, and where would we be without them? You know, um, people like Mozart was almost sure, almost assuredly a, uh, a you know, a high level autistic spot. I mean, the way he wrote music. And so I believe Einstein probably would have been labeled 
born today as many of these people would be. And who knows if that would have limited him and he would have went on and do the things that he, that he did. Dr. Robert Melillo talking with us on our program on the fans with Radio 66, which Radio 1019. Those of you joining us on Radio.com and LaGuerre's Open Golf, uh, follow our program at 7. Uh, when you're looking at this book and sharing the information that's, that's in it, what are you hoping that people who read the book take away from it? Well, I want to 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 learn from this because you know in the book I, I always liked the Da Vinci Code and my brother and I always liked um, historic novels and fiction historic fiction and so ninety percent of what's in this book is really real or may very possibly be real meaning that they're real people real events real situations that happen and even though people may not may have never heard of some of these things. Um, if you go and you research it, you'll find that, wow, these things may have actually happened this way. And if they did, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, things like the Philadelphia experiment, which I don't know if most people know, and, and um, the way Nikola Tesla died. So what I want people to do is to really find this fascinating. Like when I read the invention code, I didn't know a lot of those things. And even though maybe it wasn't 100% true, it, it made me think and it made me get curious about things and, and, and then go on and read more about that, about that you know, type of topic. And that's what I want. I want people to really uh, be more curious about this and learn and maybe teach in and learn it in an entertaining way. Um, and I want people just to be um, fascinated and curious about science and interesting things. Like, you know, um, there's a lot of questions in the book. So, you know, we talk about if Einstein did at the end of his life, he figured out the unified theory of the universe, what would have been the implications of that? And what would have been the implications that he would have figured out time travel? Even Stephen Hawkins, at the end of his life in his last book, time travel is absolutely possible based on uh, Einstein's theory. And that, you know, a unified theory of the universe would give us an answer to that. Recently, they've seen pictures around black holes, and they've actually been able to photograph them. It's like a time warp. So we know that it actually happens. And so the question is, um, you know, if Einstein had figured out time travel, um, we know that would be the ultimate weapon. The ultimate weapon would be time travel. Um, imagine if you could go back. Imagine if somebody like Hitler could get their hands on a time travel machine and go back in time. I'm thinking that he actually tried this, by the way. And we talk about that in the book. And, um, you know, and you talk about Einstein, you know, was the one who convinced FDR to start working on an atomic bomb, and it was the greatest regret of his life. He said that, you know, he would never allow any of his work to be used for a weapon. So imagine if he had figured this out and knew that it would be the ultimate weapon, would he have actually released the information? Meaning if he had figured it out, would he have told people at the time, or would he have waited, or would he have hid it somewhere until maybe another time and another person could come along that, you know, maybe a kinder, gentler time where people were more intelligent and could understand the implications. And so that's a lot of what we're talking about, too. And, um, and then we talk about this, this kid who is the impetus. He starts off with this label of, of uh, 
of autism and goes on to uh, work with a doctor who, you know, is really a combination of everybody that I've known or worked with and, and even myself. And he becomes this genius, like Einstein-level genius, and he becomes fascinated with Einstein, and he becomes fascinated with his desk like I did, and he wants to know if anything was there, and he invents this machine to be able to look at it, and he finds that the, he does find something on Einstein's desk that leads him to believe that Einstein did figure out at the end of his life, um, the ultimate secret, and that somebody else had told him that he should um, kind of hide it away. So uh, again, it's it's a really cool story. I was just in in a store the other day and uh, behind masks talking to somebody, and I was shipping a book out, and the woman asked me about the book, and I told her, she goes, "Wow, that sounds like it would make a really great movie." And I said, "You know, when I first wrote, when I first wrote the story, I thought, you know, it would really be a great movie." Um, but I want people really to just be fascinated by science. It's got a lot of brain science in it. It's got a lot of physics in it. It's got a lot of history, a lot of things about Einstein that most people don't know. He had a fascinating life. And, you know, he, he wrote these papers, his first papers in 1905, uh, at 26 years old, and he was nobody. He was uh, barely finished his PAAD. He wasn't a professor. He had been turned down from many, many uh, jobs, and he was just a clerk in the patent office. And in out of nowhere, he wrote three of the greatest scientific papers ever. And, you know, people think that everybody just automatically accepted him. But he took years of fighting, and people thought he was crazy. And, you know, nobody, people were like, who is this guy? And, you know, the way, the things they had to go through to prove that this theories were correct during World War One and just crazy things that most people don't know, and I think they'll be fascinated by it. And I'm just hoping that people will have a better understanding of what a disability is, what a genius is, um, that, you know, looking at people through science and have a curiosity that they'll want to learn more about these subjects. Dr. Robert Melillo has been our guest on our program on the fan this Sunday morning. Anne Liguri is coming up at 7 with the Talking Golf program. Dr. Melillo is the creator of the Brain Balance Program. He's internationally known as a chiropractic neurologist, professor, researcher, author, expert in childhood neurological disorders, and he's the co-author of that new book, Einstein's Desk. Thank you for joining us on our program. Certainly the best with your work. And what is an online resource for people who are listening to this discussion today if they want to find out more about your work, what you're doing. Yes, they can go to my website, which is drrobertmalillo.com. Um, I'm also very active on social media, and I'm putting up a lot of educational stuff as well for parents. On Instagram, I'm at drrobmalillo, um, and uh, Facebook as well. So they can, they can go to those sources and then like I said, Disconnect the Kids is a popular book that's been translated into, I think, uh, 12 languages now. Uh, so about a half million copies worldwide. And I get letters, you know, emails or messages every, every day, every week from people around the world just using the book alone. And that's a really good resource to start with if people want to learn about what is actually happening in the brain, what is the source of these issues, and what what can really be done about it. And, you know, um, soon, hopefully, um, the last two years, Harvard Medical School has been studying my work 
uh, at McLean Hospital, which is the number one mental institution in the United States. And there's a lab there called the Lab for Developmental Biopsychiatry. It's one of the top labs in the world for ADHD and bipolar disorder. And they invited me to lecture there um, a couple of years ago, and, and they really loved my concepts and my theories, and they agreed with, with it. Um, but they um, had never had someone that came up with a solution. So they've been studying it, and they've been doing this extensive study on ADHD uh, and looking at brain imaging with the most cutting brain imaging machines on the planet before and after and psychological testing. And so that full study is going to be coming out soon. And um, it shows that, you know, using my program exactly as I predicted, creating physical and functional changes in connectivity in the brain that no one's ever really seen before. And um, it's basically proven, you know, independently to other research that's been done by myself and others that, you know, this program and the way I talk about the brain, that it really works this way. And uh, so that's exciting. That should be coming out really almost any day now. Thank you for joining us on our program, Dr. Malillo. And the Corey's Southern Golf is along in a town this morning. Golf Sports Edge at... Well, thank you very much. And you too. And everybody else, stay safe, stay strong. All right. I think that's going to do it for our program this morning. Before we go, I, I'd be very remiss if I did not acknowledge the retirement of one John Minko. He ended his last participate here on the fan on a Friday afternoon in classic fashion, as is normal for Mr. Minko. I just want to say this. I know I'm echoing a lot of my colleagues and saying Minko is a consummate professional. I considered him a good friend. He and I had some very intense and very heart-to-heart -heart discussions here early on Sunday mornings and at other times over the many years that we've worked together. And his presence on Sunday morning certainly enlivened this program. It's something that I can never forget. And um, as I said to him in an email on Friday night, it truly is a pleasure to have worked in his on-air presence. He's that good, and he will be sorely, and I do mean this, sorely missed. A tip of the hat, and also a tip of the hat to him because of the class way in which he moved on with his life. We certainly wish you and Darlene the best, Nick. Thanks for making Sunday mornings truly a fun fest. Well, Anne Liguri is going to continue the fun after 7 this morning. Rick Wolf has the Sports Edge program along at 8 o'clock, and Mike Francis is by at 9 o'clock. We will see you bright and early at 6 next Sunday morning here on The Fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. 
Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.